0: Thank you for coming on this cold and windy night. Uh, We'll be talking today about the future of securitization, a sort of cold and windy subject, perhaps. Um, The securitization of subprime mortgage loans is widely viewed as a root cause of the subprime financial crisis. And in the United States, there was significant pressure on banks and other lenders to make these mortgage loans to expand home ownership, even for risky borrowers. Uh, These so-called subprime loans were often made to people with little real income, and the intention was that the appreciation of the collateral, the housing itself, would enable the loan to be repaid. Now, historically, home prices in the US had risen since the Great Depression. So this wasn't a crazy assumption. The model failed when in 2007 and 2008, home prices fell significantly. And in one sense, this precipitous drop in prices was unexpected. So like Monty Python's skit, nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. But it's a good skit. But in another sense, the fall arguably should have been anticipated based on the earlier liquidity glut and its artificially low interest rates, which drove up housing prices. Now, as a result of the fall in home prices, borrowers who were relying on refinancing for loan repayment could not do so. And many subprime mortgage loans had adjustable rates that increased after an initial Teaser period. Borrowers who could not afford the rate increase hoped to refinance, but that likewise was stymied by the, increase, by the decreasing home prices. And as a result, many of these subprime or risky borrowers began defaulting. Now, these defaults in turn cause substantial amounts. Of low investment grade rated mortgage backed securities to default. And they also caused even the highest rated securities, the AAA rated securities, to be downgraded. Now, these defaults and downgradings spooked investors who believed that AAA meant ironclad safety and that investment grade meant relative freedom from default. Investors started losing confidence in ratings and they began to avoid all types of rated debt securities. Fewer investors meant that debt securities, the prices of debt securities, began to fall, and this meant that firms using debt securities as collateral had to mark them to market and put up cash, in turn requiring the sale of more securities and causing market prices to plummet even further in a death spiral. In mid-September 2008, when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the U.S. government uh, refused to bail them out, um, uh, there was a panic in the debt markets. Even the short-term commercial paper markets virtually shut down. Now, as a result of the shutdown of the debt markets, there was very little debt financing available. Uh, Companies could no longer grow. In some cases, uh, they could not even survive, and that affected the real economy and led to the crisis. Now, let's address securitization's problems. Securitization, uh, I think, even prior to the crisis and now, is one of the primary mechanisms by which companies can obtain financing from the capital markets and look at its benefits and put it into perspective. The Going to the capital markets and bypassing, bypassing high-cost intermediaries like banks is known as disintermediation. And as a disintermediation tool, securitization can precisely allocate risk with capital and avoid middleman inefficiencies. It also can enable companies to access the capital markets directly, in many cases at lower cost, than the cost of issuing direct debt, such as bonds or commercial paper. Also, when the securitized assets or loans, like mortgage loans, securitization can help to transform the loans into cash, in which banks and other lenders can make new loans. Now, during the Q and A period last evening, uh, the question of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac came up, and this was basically one of their functions to make sure that there was a very robust um, market to transform mortgage loans into cash and enable banks to make new loans. So securitization has many positives. The positives may be outweighed by the flaws that were revealed during the financial crisis. Now, let me step back and say that whether securitization, even with its flaws, created net positive value is an unresolved question. And my goal in this talk is not to attempt to answer that question. I merely examine how we can overcome the flaws. And I believe there are at least four potential types of flaws. Number one, that subprime mortgages may be a problematic asset type that should not have been securitized. Two, the originate to distribute model of securitization might create moral hazard. Three, securitization can create servicing conflicts. And four, securitization can foster over-reliance on mathematical models. So let's address each of these flaws I will say there's at least a fifth possible floor that securitization induces potential over-reliance on ratings and rating agencies, but that's beyond the scope of this talk, although I'm happy to discuss it during the question and answer period. Um, Let me talk about some terminology I'll be using tonight. The phrase subprime mortgage loans or subprime mortgages, these mean loans to risky borrowers who use the proceeds to purchase homes and then mortgage the homes as collateral. And because the borrowers are risky, the collateral is a primary source of repayment. Now, in its most basic form, the term mortgage securitization refers to the issuance of mortgage-backed securities, sometimes referred to as MBS, the issuance of mortgage-backed securities by a special-purpose vehicle, sometimes referred to as an SPV. And payment on these securities is derived from collections on the mortgage loans owned by the SPV. You can have more complex forms of mortgage-backed securities and these would include collateralized debt obligations CDO securities in this case payment derives directly from a mixed pool of mortgage loans and sometimes other financial assets owned by the SPV you also can have things like ABS CDO securities in which payment derives from not from the underlying mortgage loans directly but from other types of securities such as mortgage-backed securities and CDO securities. So this is like a securitization of a securitization, in effect. Um, The phrase subprime mortgage securitization can reference any of these financial products so long as a material portion of the underlying financial assets consist of subprime mortgages. Now let's focus on what went wrong. First, Question: if Were subprime mortgages a problematic asset type? Some believe it was, I tend to agree, because of its almost absolute dependence on home price appreciation. And from that perspective, parties structuring securitization transactions can minimize future problems by excluding subprime mortgages and, more importantly, by conservatively assessing the payment prognosis for any other types of financial assets underlying the securitizations. And this is important not only to protect the integrity of the securitization transactions themselves, but also to to avoid the unintended consequence that securitization of a problematic asset type actually can motivate greater origination of the asset type because it becomes part of the sales process. Now, this is not to say that this type of procedure will be fail-safe to uh, basically conservatively assess payment prognosis. Um, Parties to securitization transactions must be very diligent. It must protect against the possibility that an underlying financial asset might fail in an unexpected way. And consider for example, what about automobile loan securitization, a very big business? What would happen if there were a technological innovation where cars became obsolete? And therefore even the a, a financially healthy borrower might refuse to pay his or her her car loan. Now the invention of a new form of personal transportation is somewhat implausible, but you know, so was the idea that home prices would collapse. Now, it's no question that mortgage underwriting standards fell, but there are various other explanations of why they might have fallen, might, why they fell. For example, lower standards could reflect the distortions caused by the liquidity glut of that time. Lenders were competing aggressively for business, allowing otherwise defaulting home borrowers to refinance. In the corporate lending context, lenders and banks were even making so-called covenant light loans. These were loans without the requisite covenants that would show the possibility that the borrower was going to default. A fall in standards also may reflect conflicts of interest, perhaps between the lending firms and the employees of those firms. And blaming Originate to Distribute for lower mortgage underwriting standards does not explain why standards did not similarly go down for originating non-mortgage financial assets used in other types of securitization transactions. And nor does it explain why the ultimate beneficial owners of the mortgage loans, and these were the investors in the mortgage-backed securities why they did not govern their investment decisions but the same strict lending standards that they would have observed but for the separation of origination and ownership now i should as a parenthetical say that in yesterday's lecture where we talked about complexity i you know i think there's at least some explanation for why the ultimate investors did not engage and the type of due diligence they should have. Uh, One is the inherent inherent inadequacy of disclosure for very complex ABS-CDO-type securities. You also have the possible excessive diversification of risk created by these securities, which arguably undermined any given investor's incentive to monitor And, of course, you have the tendency of investors to engage in herd behavior. Now, whether or not the originate-distribute model was a significant cause of the financial crisis, the model clearly needs fixing to avoid its perception as a clause. And I think there's little question that the model should remain basically intact. It's critical to the underlying funding liquidity of banks and corporations, and empirical evidence to date, at least tentatively indicates that it does create net value. The goal, therefore, should be to minimize any potential moral hazard resulting from the originate-to-distribute model without undermining the model's utility. And this might be done in various ways. One way is to require the mortgage lenders and other originators to retain some realistic risk of loss. So in the United States, under the Dodd-Frank Act, for example, there is a requirement that sellers of these types of securities must retain at least 5% risk in the assets they sell. Um, We did mention yesterday that this could work, but it does have a negative. It does create the possibility of increasing the mutual misinformation problem. And this is a problem that a seller that retains a percentage of the risk signals to the buyer that the assets being sold, the securities being sold, are safe and therefore may actually stimulate people to buy more of these assets. Another possible approach to moral hazard is what was done after the Great Depression. And I mentioned, I went through yesterday, or maybe the day before, right now I can't recall which day, but I talked about, the yesterday was the parallels between the global financial crisis, and the subprime lending, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the Great Depression and margin lending to risky borrowers. And after the Great Depression, in the U.S., the Federal Reserve Bank attempted to reduce this moral hazard problem. They promulgated regulations referred to as G, U, T, and X, and the most Famous one is Regulation U that applies to bank lending. It essentially says that a bank making a margin loan, that's a loan where the proceeds are used to acquire stock and where the stock is then pledged as collateral. In that case, the value of the stock collateral must be at least double the amount of the loan, essentially a two-to-one collateral coverage ratio. And that makes these loans safer. Now, you could arguably use a parallel approach for you know, subprime loans, you could say, or home mortgages. You could say, you could promulgate a rule saying that the value of uh, housing collateral used uh, in a loan uh, where the proceeds the loan enables the borrower to acquire the collateral must be at least double the amount of the principal amount of the loan. Again, two to one collateral coverage or whatever other ratio seems to make sense. That would protect against this very specific financial crisis we had, but it might not protect against a future crisis. And I think even more problematically, that type of requirement is very expensive it means that homes would be much more expensive to finance. So I'm not sure that that would be the best way to go about it. Um, Let's turn now to the third flaw, and that's servicing conflicts. Mortgage securitization made it difficult to work out problems with the underlying mortgage loans. The beneficial owners of the loans were no longer the lenders themselves, but this broad universe of investors in the mortgage-backed securities. In theory, servicers are hired to bridge the gap between the investors as the beneficial owners and the mortgage lenders. And the servicers, under the various loan documents, the indentures and so forth, retain the power or have the power to restructure the underlying mortgage loans in the, quote, best interests, unquote, of the investors. And so in theory, that makes sense. But in practice, it doesn't always work well. For example, servicers may be reluctant to restructure a mortgage loan if there's uncertainty whether the cost of the restructuring will be reimbursed. Foreclosure costs, in contrast, are relatively minimal. And so you often see these servicers foreclosing on the loans when a restructuring might be uh, better advised. Servicers also prefer foreclosure over restructuring because foreclosure is much more ministerial. It's much more straightforward and therefore has lower litigation risk. You don't have to exercise the judgment that you would have to exercise if you attempt to restructure a loan. Um, Now, restructuring also can involve very difficult uh, decisions. I'll give an example. Um, you often have mortgage securitization transactions in which cash flows deriving from principal and interest are separately allocated to different investor classes or tranches. Uh, and some restructuring, it, well, let me just say you so consider that. A mortgage securitization. you have, among other investor classes, uh, a class that gets payment based on the principal uh, payments of the mortgages, a class that gets payment based on the interest under the mortgages. Um, If there were an attempt to restructure the mortgage loans and you were to, in some way, uh, reduce principal, then you prejudice the principal um, tranche And uh, uh, whereas the interest tranche would not be affected. Uh, If you restructure the loans and change the interest rate, then you prejudice that tranche and you don't prejudice the principal tranche. And some people have referred to this as tranche warfare, which is a very bad pun on Armistice Day, but anyway. Um, Now, these problems can and in the future should be fixed. Parties can, and they should, write deal documentation that sets clearer and more flexible guidelines, especially when restructuring appears to be superior to foreclosure. They also should try to minimize allocating cash flows to investors in ways that create conflicts like the principal only and the interest only. Furthermore, I've argued that non-conflicted servicers that engage in restructuring in good faith should be protected, perhaps akin to something like the business judgment rule that protects corporate directors. So that's the third category. Let's now talk about the fourth category of flaws, the over-reliance on mathematical models. And to some extent, this resulted from, I think, and this is really the bottom line, a complete abandonment of common sense the over-reliance on these complex mathematical models. Now, some modeling and computers are necessary for securization because you need to statistically predict what future cash flows would become available from the underlying financial assets to pay the securities. And models can bring insight and clarity. If the model is realistic and the inputted data are reliable, models can yield accurate predictions of real events. But if the model is unrealistic or if the inputted data are unreliable, models can be extremely misleading, garbage in, garbage out. Now, subprime mortgage securitization relied on assumptions and historical data that, in retrospect, turned out to be incorrect and therefore made the valuations incorrect, Yesterday we discussed the limitations of the value at risk or VAR model. In addition to that, some securitization models incorrectly assumed, or many assumed, that housing would not depreciate in level to the uh, not depreciate in value to the levels later seen, and valuation errors were compounded because the mortgage loans being made in recent years had very. Innovative terms, adjustable rates, that's not that innovative, but low to zero down payment requirements, interest-only payment options, negative amortizations. These were very new and complex terms, and many borrowers did not fully understand what they were and the risks that they were taking. As a result, borrowers defaulted at a much higher rate than the models would have predicted. Now, the models even get worse because, in some cases, the models and assumptions substituted for any real market information. And, for example, the highly leveraged ABS-CDO securities, and these, I think, were the the mortgage-backed securities that really created the problem, they did not have an active trading market. Investors instead relied on what are referred to as mark-to-model valuation of the securities. But the assumptions underlying these models turned out to be wrong, and investors panicked because they had no idea at that point what these securities were worth. Now, in theory, over-reliance on mathematical models will be self-correcting. The recent crisis, by its very existence, has shaken faith in the market's ability to analyze and measure risk through models. And securitization products are likely to be confined, at least in the near future, to those that can be robustly modeled. That the only question will be what the longevity of the lesson that future risk cannot always be predicted through models, what that longevity will be. Now let's talk about the future of securitization. General observations. Securitization Properly utilized is an efficient financial tool. Um, however, in the near future at least, I think that securitization transactions to be viable need to focus on basic structures and basic asset types in order to attract investors. And there should, for example, be an emphasis on cash flow securitizations in which there are the traditional two ways out. An example of this would be securitization of prime mortgage loans in which the payment could come either from the borrower or from the collateral or from both. Furthermore, we're not likely to see, and I hope we don't see, many highly complex products like ABS-CDO transactions that magnify leverage. But there are exciting potential new applications of securitization, such as to microfinance. And microfinance refers to providing small loans and other proportionally sized financial services to low-income individuals and the poor. And the purpose in most cases is to enable them to start or expand small businesses. These types of loans are now being made uh, in the U.S. even and around the world, mostly in less developed countries, With estimates of between 20 and 60 billion dollars outstanding. And as a result of the success of microfinance, the need for microfinance lending vastly exceeds the amount of funds it presently has, which comes mostly from charitable donors. It's been estimated that of the one and a half billion people potentially eligible for microfinance loans, only 100 million less than 7% receive these loans. Now, to satisfy this demand for microfinance lending, commercial banks have become vital funding sources for microfinance loans in many countries. The problem is that many of these banks are charging exorbitant rates of interest. Some are charging rates of 100% or more. Now, these are risky loans, but it doesn't justify those types of rates. And I've recently argued that securitization can and should be applied to microfinance to disintermediate, remove the need for commercial banks. If you were to sell, let's say, um, microfinance loan-backed securities, even profit-motivated investors should want to invest. It's a means of diversifying their portfolio, thereby minimizing the market risk problem. But the challenge is to ensure that these types of securitization transactions are structured with the lessons of the failure of subprime mortgage securitization in mind, and to resist political pressures to cut corners. And just as in the U.S. there was pressure to make subprime loans to enfranchise the poor with homes, one could easily imagine in less developed countries, the political pressure there will be to securitize microfinance loans to increase the amount of lending that would be available to residents of the country. <coughs> now, in the medium term, <coughs> securitization's future will be at least marginally influenced by the extent to which the intrinsic values of mortgage backed securities turn out to be worth more than their market values. And I've noted that uh, in the past day or two, that as a result of irrational panic, the market prices of mortgage-backed securities originally collapsed way below the intrinsic value of the mortgage loans that supported those securities. If we were to find large differential now between the value of these securities and the market price, that would certainly indicate that the problem was more, one of investing, uh, was more one of investor panic than an intrinsic lack of worth. The problem, though, I'm not sure we'll be able to measure that properly because once the markets collapsed and had the effect of depriving uh, the economy of credit, uh, the real economy collapsed due to a failure of credit, and when the real economy collapsed, even prime mortgageors lost their jobs and the uh, value actually went down. It was somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Now, whether securitization will remain vibrant and inventive in the long term will turn, in part at least, on our ability to better understand the problems of complexity, which I talked about yesterday. Now... Let's discuss, we've discussed securitization, its benefits, its flaws, where it's going. Let's discuss possible alternatives to securitization. And the leading alternative seen by the markets is covered bonds. Now, covered bonds have a long history in European securities markets. Uh, They began in Germany some centuries back. Uh, by the end of 2008, the amount that covered bonds are standing in Europe alone was about 2.4 uh, trillion euros, which was up from 1.5 trillion in 2003. There's, what are covered bonds? There's no formal international convention or treaty defining covered bonds. They're defined instead de facto by their characteristics. They're essentially long-term debt securities that are secured by specific assets of an issuer of bonds. The assets constituting collateral referred to as cover pool assets. And to the extent cover pool assets are insufficient to pay principal interest on the covered bonds, investors in the covered bonds have an unsecured claim against the issuer of the bonds for this insufficiency, and this is referred to in covered bond parlance as dual recourse. For those of you who are into debt financing, dual recourse is fairly typical. Uh, if you make a loan to someone and the collateral is insufficient to repay, you have a direct claim against that person. Now, as with any granting of collateral, cover pool assets are deemed to remain on the issuer's balance sheet for accounting purposes. But unlike normal collateral, the cover pool assets are ring-fenced. The term ring-fencing, just like covered bonds, doesn't have a specific official definition. It effectively means that the collateral is segregated from the issuer's estate so that in the event of the issuer's bankruptcy or insolvency, the covered bond investors will have the ability to go to those assets, and nothing will basically be able to prevent it. The equivalent concept in the U.S. would be referred to as bankruptcy remoteness. Additionally, with covered bonds, weak covered pool assets are required to be replaced by good quality assets throughout the life of the covered bonds. This means that there will be always a minimum requisite level of so-called over-collateralization, an amount of good collateral exceeding the amount of a loan. Now, to ensure that this is all enforceable by covered bondholders, some countries have promulgated specific covered bond legislation. And these countries are referred to as legislative covered bond regimes. But in countries where you don't have legislation of this type, covered bondholders rely on contractual protections and commercial law, and this is called a structured covered bond regime. Now, covered bonds and securitization transactions have many significant similarities. The most important, perhaps, is that both strive for bankruptcy remoteness. Again, the goal of covering the investors, in the event of the issuer's bankruptcy. Covered bond transactions strive to achieve bankruptcy remoteness through ring fencing or by legislative fiat. Securitization transactions, in contrast, achieve bankruptcy remoteness by having the company originating the receivables, the originator, transfer them, or originating the financial assets, whatever you want to call it, transfer them in a so-called true sale under bankruptcy law to a bankruptcy remote SPV. But these steps parallel ring fencing. So, so far, I don't think there's a huge difference between securitization and covered bonds. Another similarity is that after covered bondholders are paid in full, and also after securitization investors are paid in full, any residual value from the asset serving as collateral is returned for the benefit of the unsecured creditors. Now, <clears throat> those are the, the similarities, but there are important differences too. A primary difference is that covered bonds have dual recourse, which I mentioned. Securitization, in contrast, is what's referred to as non-recourse financing. By non-recourse, it really, the term is non-recourse. It really, better term might be limited recourse and that is that an investor in a securitization transaction has recourse against the financial assets that are dedicated for payment but does not have recourse against the originator of those assets directly. Um, Another distinction is that in covered bond transactions, the cover pool assets typically remain, as I mentioned, on the issuer's balance sheet for accounting purposes. In securitization transactions, it's been more typical for the assets that are transferred to be accounted for as a sale. But even this accounting distinction, which is artificial based on accounting, um, is uh, sort of diminishing. Securitization transactions can be, and they increasingly are, being structured as on balance sheet Transactions and the absence of an accounting benefit does not undermine securitization's key fundraising and risk transfer functions. The securitization, much like a new money loan, would not harm unsecured creditors of a company because it basically exchanges one type of asset, uh, cash, for another type of asset, financial assets. And that is good in terms of unsecured creditors. Uh, Unsecured creditors in the securitization deal, unless the party, uh, the originator, obtaining the proceeds of the securitization, really overinvested or unwisely invested, the unsecured creditors of the originator will be in the same position after the securitization as before. And they may be better off because if the company had gone and borrowed money, they might have paid a higher interest rate, almost certainly would have paid a higher interest rate. But unsecured creditors actually can fare differently with covered bond regimes. Although covered bond regimes and their immediate impact are like securitization, that is as an exchange of cash, um, you know, and, a, and a, essentially an, a liability. Covered bonds go beyond securitization in two ways that can harm unsecured creditors. First, in a securitization, if the over-collateralization, the financial assets transferred, that amount, if it's insufficient to repay the investors, then the investors will suffer a loss. Securitizations, again, are non-recourse. The pool of assets available for repayment of these securitization investors is effectively fixed. In contrast, in covered bond transactions, the cover pools are almost always what's referred to as dynamic. And this was what I mentioned before, that the covered bond issuer must continually segregate new assets as needed, maintaining the level of overcollateralization, thereby enabling the covered bondholders to be paid uh, in priority to unsecured creditors. Covered bonds also go beyond securitization in their recourse. I mentioned securitization transactions being non recourse. Covered bonds have what I referred to before as dual recourse. If the cover pool assets are insufficient, covered bondholders have a recourse claim against the issuer. And that claim is peri passu or equal and rateable with the claims of unsecured creditors. Therefore, To the extent the cover pool assets are insufficient, the covered bondholders' claims will dilute the claims of unsecured creditors. Now, as a result of this dynamic cover pool and the dual recourse, covered bond transactions shift virtually all risk to unsecured creditors. And I believe it's an important policy question that should be addressed by governments, and any market participants covering, exploring covered bonds as an alternative to securitization as to whether risk should be allocated uh, so asymmetrically, whether risk should be shifted essentially from investors to the unsecured creditors. So that's what I wanted to talk about today, and I'd like to take questions. Um, I, you know, I, I, I tend to be um, anti-regulation uh, to the extent one does not know what the, um, you know, what the consequences of any regulation will be. But securitization of securitization, to the extent it has a value, I would see only one, and I'm certainly not advocating it. I I think that the ABS-CDO transactions were what gave securitization a bad name, and if they had never occurred, we'd all be much better off. Um, What securitization of securitization can do is it can actually, which might be beneficial, is it can diversify risk to a very high level. So if you have a securitization transaction, for example let's assume, even before that, you have a mortgage loan. On a mortgage loan, a lender essentially has the exposure to the borrower for repayment. So if the borrower doesn't repay, the lender will be out that amount. By securitizing uh, the loans, the mortgage loans, what the lender can do, besides getting cash, is it can shift the risk on those loans to the capital markets, to investors who will share that risk among themselves. And the hope is that those, and that makes sense if those investors truly understand the risk that they're assuming. Now, you have two problems with the securitization of securitization. One problem is that it can become so complicated that the paradigm that the investors understand it could break down. And I talked about that in part yesterday when I talked about complexity. The second problem is that, and, and this is something I'm presently looking at and writing a paper about, and, and will actually be presenting a workshop at LLC uh, next Wednesday on, whether there can be a diversification of risk, a dispersing of risk that is counterproductive insofar as any given investor on the other side sees the risk as so de minimis that it does not have an economic incentive to do due diligence and to monitor it, but yet in the aggregate among all investors, the risk could have a very bad, you know, it could create market consequences. So those are issues and I think that the jury's out, so to speak on 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 both of those issues, but those are concerns I'm worried about okay well let me, oh I'm sorry okay, so let me let me just say I agree with um, the last point. Um, on the point before, um, you're absolutely right that it, it, well you're, you're, you're right, but I think it goes even further than what you say. I think the point you made is that you have so many different professionals involved, each one with expertise, that unless you had all of them together, you couldn't really convey the information to the investors in a way. But I would go further, and I would say that, and, and this is based uh, at least partly in my experience, and I practiced um, law and helped to pioneer the field back in the 80s and 90s. And um, uh, in my experience, there were very few people even among the professionals who fully understood what they were responsible for. And that's a problem. And that's when I referred to the problem of complexity. Um, I think that things are so complex that we as humans don't fully understand it. Now, the concept of the team is important. Um, Popper, the the philosopher, um, essentially, uh, you know, didn't know about securitization, but he compared, uh, he talked about complexity in terms of an airplane. An airplane is very complex, and you not everyone understands it, but you do have teams who come together, and, you know, information is transmitted. Now, I'm not entirely sure whether airplanes do, you know, you do a better job with airplanes than you do with securitization. The difference is, and um, I observed this yesterday, that if there's a problem with an airplane, the entire fleet other than A380s, the entire fleet doesn't all of a sudden fall out of the sky. But with securitization, you had this—this this essentially the the failure of of the of, of the of, of the financial product led to a complete lack of faith in ratings, and that had a much more systemic effect and uh, larger consequences. So, um, you know, all that's by way of saying that. I'm not entirely sure that we could ever solve these problems. Yes? Well, the, I think you've essentially made two points um, that relate to each other. The, the settlement mechanisms are not always perfect, but the hope is that um, uh, there will be sufficient, it'll, it will sort of muddle through And for that reason, most of these deals are over-collateralized to an extent that even if there is a lot of failure, there will be enough cash flow to pay the investors, although the investors do take a risk because if they didn't take some risk, you couldn't achieve the bankruptcy remoteness that is so critical to these deals. Um, The nature of the servicing depends very much on the nature of the underlying financial asset. So, for example, take a securitization of trade receivables. Very common, very, very big. Um, That's fairly easy. Typically, the originator of the trade receivables, the company that sold the products, provided the services for which the receivables are due, that company itself would be hired as a servicer on an arm's length basis to service the receivables for the SPV. And that's the same company that's been doing this before it sold the receivables. So they should know what to do. It gets much more complex in terms of mortgage loans uh, and uh, because you have, um, first of all, you have, it's not in a corporate context, it's in an individual context. You have all these types of laws that protect individuals, protect foreclosures on homes. And in terms of the complications of the tranche warfare, um, I think that when I, you know, I've done many, many securitization deals. I've never done a securitization deal where we have allocated the cash flows in ways that would create a conflict of that sort. Uh, Typically, you would allocate it either on a pro rata basis, or you'd allocate it in, an, in a you know priority basis, as which classes get paid first, and which second, and which third, the so-called waterfall of payments. So, um, if you do allocate it, you know, in a way that creates a conflict, you're going to have a conflict, and that's all I can say about that. Uh, the question, yes. Uh, I've got to have some common sense of, okay, now. The common sense, I I agree. I mean, one one of the things I mentioned in terms of mathematical mathematical modeling was the lack of common sense. And I think rather than you you would say that uh, that you would ban all this stuff, I would say let's step back and see where the market failures are that cause the problems. For example, why is it that investors invest in securities they don't understand? I mean, should they? And and I think, to some extent, this is a hurting behavior. Uh, To some extent, there may be other explanations, but let's try to understand that. Um, In terms of uh, the um, so-called monoline insurance companies, the companies that engaged in one line of business, and that business, in most cases, was to effectively guarantee the payment of mortgage-backed and asset-backed securities, Um, when ABS-CDO transactions came out, many of them just jumped in line to get the fees, didn't really understand them. Some of them said, we can't understand it. We're not going to back these transactions. That was the proper response. And I think that we need to have better diligence on the part of investors, and I think that people should, we need to have more common sense in investing in our financial system.